Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. I hope you're having a great week, coping with the snow, coping with the cold, And of course, if you live somewhere warm, then please send a little over our way. That'd be great. I've been busy this past week doing the final edits for my upcoming new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. And if you've been enjoying the podcasts, the guests, their fantastic insights, I really think you're going to love this new book, which is all about really connecting you with these leading experts at the front lines of performance around the world. So Peak is set to drop. May 24th, but it is available right now for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, or your local book sellers. And if you do pick it up, you'll automatically get some cool free bonuses that we've got to give away here. Uh, Some bonus material, a chance to win one of $650 supplement prize packs from my friends at Organica, one of three one-to-one visits with myself, And for clinics or gyms out there who want to do a bulk order, you can get a big 40% discount as well as a chance to win a talk at your facility. So lots of cool stuff here. Just email your proof of purchase to info at drbubs.com and you'll be entered to win. Awesome. Today on the show, I'm excited to be chatting with competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter from the UK, Mr. Steve Hall is on the show. In this episode, Steve dives into the key training principles, specificity, progressive overload, fatigue management, programming, and individualization. Within this framework, Steve highlights the importance of volume landmarks, the nuances of deload weeks, common hypertrophy programming mistakes, and the value of mini cuts to remain lean as you build size. Steve also talks about how the best lifters monitor their training progress, the key role of mindset in achieving your goals, And he also shares some of his early life challenges and how he had to overcome those to really trigger his passion for the work he does today. Awesome. Lots of great evidence-based insights here from Steve. And best of all, lots of practical applications you can take away from this and implement into your training or with your clients. As usual, for the links, check out the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on this topic, then definitely circle back to Season 2, Episode 34, Nutritional Strategies for Elite Bodybuilders and Building Muscle with Dr. Andrew Chappelle. Season 2, Episode 7, Nutrition for Bodybuilders, Hypertrophy, and Physique-Focused Athletes with Dr. Eric Helms. And of course, Season 1, Episode 25, Hypertrophy Training, Fat Loss Myths, and Nutrition for Muscle Building with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Remember, you can check out all these experts and more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform. And make sure you subscribe because you don't want to miss any of the fantastic guests we've got teed up here in 2019. All right, before we jump in, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest, mineral-rich ocean water. Collected above natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. 
The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% sport drink, tested and improved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season 3, Episode 11. Enjoy. My guest today is Steve Hall, a competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter, as well as the founder of Revive Stronger. Steve uses his vast experience in science to get results for all of his clients. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate it. I love being on the other end. I think it's good for me to yeah, try and share and talk and it's good practice to also try, yeah, talk a little bit more rather than just being the one asking the question. So I appreciate being invited on. Well, that's terrific. Well, listen, I've definitely really enjoyed digging into your content and your podcast, Revive Stronger, and all your insights over the last year or so. So for listeners here who are just getting to know you, can you perhaps uh, walk us through a little bit more about your journey to where you're at today as a coach and competitive bodybuilder? Absolutely. So um, I kind of, obviously you brought up Revive Stronger, which is my kind of company uh, who I work for. And uh, it's that name means something. So I think there's a lot of coaching companies. They're just, I don't know, they, uh, for the time at which, uh, if it fits your macros became popular, there was a lot of like ice cream fitness and nice. all of these sort of ones. And sure. uh, mine has a personal meaning, uh, which is what I'll, I'll kind of take you through. And essentially as a child and as a, as someone, as a teenager, I'd always been into sport, always been into kind of more so football, longer distance running. And I, I enjoyed it, but it was never my necessarily the way I wanted to go, partly because as a kid, I've always been, and even now, more on the shire side, never that confident. And I was bullied uh, in secondary school quite a lot during PE. So it wasn't something I ever pursued. So if you'd asked me back then, uh, would I be doing what I'm doing now? I absolutely wouldn't think I would be. So I went to university and did geography with business. And I, in my second year, during that period of time, I mean, during university, I was still going to the gym. I went to the gym whilst I was at school as well from the age of 16, but I didn't really see many results as a lot of the listeners probably can relate to just sure. kind of going to the gym, not really having any proper structure, any real routine. You see kind of those newbie gains um, but not much more. And there was no basis for my nutrition. It was just, I knew protein was important. Protein shakes were kind of being available at the time. I was starting to get into it a little bit and I kind of take these secretly in the toilet. So my friends didn't see, cause I thought I'd take some, <laughs> nice. some magical advantage with this, uh, which is crazy. And at the time, even some of my friends who didn't even take it as seriously as me, they were getting better results. And I think it was just, that's where I was seeing like genetics, but um, I really wanted to get into the gym and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working on myself and getting bigger and stronger in that way. But whilst I was at university, I was trying again, playing football. I tried rowing. Um, I did distance running, loads of different things. I just enjoyed kind of knackering my body out and pushing it to its limits. It wasn't until my second year in uni where I unfortunately was on a typical 10 kilometer run that I would do. I had my whole Garmin watch, um, my kind of the heart rate monitor around me. I, I don't use any of this stuff anymore and I don't run anymore. And I could see I was on for an all time like personal best. And I came to some traffic lights. It was kind of like, do I go and like to beat my personal best and 
again, you're seeing an insight into what my mentality is like, very kind of obsessed about beating my past self and just obsessive in general. Whenever I put my mind to something, I'm going to do it as best as I can. So I kind of ran and didn't really look at the cars coming along and unfortunately got hit by a van. Um, oh, man. Yeah, so it was a pretty horrific accident in that I fractured my skull, I got scarring on my back and on my elbow, and I was actually released from hospital within kind of a couple of days, uh, but I was taken home, and during my time at home, I just, nothing felt right, I felt really odd, mm-hmm. and then in the middle of the night, I just was up vomiting, I'd almost like blacked out, and I'd, I was just being really weird and my parents were like what the hell is wrong with this kid like I was screaming shouting not in a good way and so they took me to A&E and from there I was in hospital for about a month and this is where Revive with Stephen Hall came from and the name Revive with Stephen Hall is all about the accident reviving getting stronger and being your best ever and I decided to rebrand eventually to Revive Stronger uh, because I wanted to be more than me I wanted to be more than just the brand behind kind of the person and I brought on other kind of now we've got Pascal Floor who is kind of my co-owner and Miguel Blacout which is another coach of Revive Stronger and really the whole philosophy behind the brand and behind it is that story of you can be at ground zero in the worst position of your life and still transform your like body into the best shape it's ever been to the healthiest state it's ever been and I think there's a lot of people that can probably relate to being in a really bad position in life with everything, whether or not it's just their mindset, their physicality, or their environment. But I think if you take control of your nutrition, your training, you educate yourself, you can transform yourself. And this is what I wanted to do with my online coaching business. So in a, in a long way, that's kind of where I came from. That's where Revive Stronger came from. And that's why I do what I do today. That's phenomenal and definitely a you know, hugely inspiring story for for anyone who's listening in and all trainees and, you know, amazing to see all the things that you're doing now. And of course that dovetails into what we're going to talk about here today. And you mentioned, you know, guys like Dr. Eric Helms, who we had on the podcast last year talking you know, nutrition for hypertrophy and then getting leaner. And so perhaps that's a good place to kick things off here, Steve, by talking about training principles, you know, to get listeners on the same page. Can you review some of those fundamental principles that you're always coming back to, to make sure you're achieving those goals? Absolutely. So, I um, have a training principles kind of pyramid uh, that I've, again, influenced by the muscle and strength pyramids that Eric Helms produced, which are fantastic. And then the scientific principles of strength training, which is by Renaissance Periodization, uh, Mike Isretel, James Hoffman, and Chaz Wes- Chad Wesley Smith, all great minds. And kind of using a bit of my own experience, combination of their books, um, I came up with the training principles kind of pyramid. So at the bottom uh, is the biggest, most important things up at the top are lesser important. So at the bottom of my pyramid is specificity. So this is basically everything you do in the gym should aid towards your goal. So if you want to get better at running, everything you do in the gym should really try and get you better at running. If you want to get more jacked, hypertrophy training, everything you do in the gym should be related to that. So if you look at your training program and there's elements of it that say, okay, this actually isn't targeted towards my actual goal, then you have to be like, well, why am I doing it? And it might be for other reasons. A big one is adherence, enjoyment, which is kind of all encompassing over the entire pyramid. But that's kind of the baseline. What are you doing in the gym? Why are you doing it? Does it relate to your specific goal? It holds so many people back, especially as they're trying to get more advanced. They aren't specific enough. And I very much relate it to 
when you're at school, you do lots of subjects. As you get further advanced within your education, you have to get more and more specific if you want to get better and better. You'll either become kind of the jack of all trades um, and you become not an expert at anything. So if you want to become advanced, you want to become really muscular, then you better specify everything in your training plan to move towards hypertrophy. So then the next level within the training principles pyramid is progressive overload or overload in general. So overload is basically, it needs to be hard. It needs to be something that challenges you. It causes stress. When you think about the body, it loves homeostasis. If we want to grow, we need to take it out of its comfort zone. And that means it needs to be overloading. So essentially it needs to be hard. Progressive overload can be thought of making it harder over time. So we need to add either reps, sets, weight on the bar, or just density. There's loads of way to, ways to progress over time. And so if you want to get better over time, you need to make it harder over time. And that progression, just so people are aware, will slow down over time as well. So just like any skill, you can learn it really, really quickly, like learning to ride a bike, but be, to become like an expert kind of uh, advanced cyclist, you need to be kind of doing it for a long, long time to be that expert. Kind of there's a steep learning curve and then it kind of pitters out. And Steve, if we just jump in there real quick, and uh, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, as you're getting, as the training age increases, obviously the gains are there where they become, you know, much smaller. And, you know, I know you've collaborated a lot with uh, Mike Isretel, as you mentioned there, of Renaissance Periodization, and, and interviewed him a lot of times in your podcast. And you guys um, talked a lot about volume landmarks. So yes. when we talk a bit about this idea of progressive overload, and obviously Mike's coined some terms like uh, maximum recoverable volume. Could you run through, uh, you know, the little, the alphabet soup here for listeners, yeah. you know, the, the MV, the MED, the MAV, and, and how it can guide uh, training for folks? Yeah. For, so for what you talked about, volume landmarks. So there's minimum effective volume, which is MEV, maximal adaptive volume, MAV, and then maximal recoverable volume, which you talked about and probably most people are aware with, which is um, MRV, the most volume you can do and recover from. So I think a lot of people focus too much on that MRV. They focus too much on that element. And I think it's really great, actually, to bring things back to your minimum effective volume, which as a definition is the least amount of work you need to do in the gym to see uh, kind of the results you want. So it's the least you need to do in the gym for your muscles to grow. And from there, that's your overload for me. That's like, if you're not doing that, you're not overloading sufficiently to see progression. So anything from MEV, Anything harder than that, progressive overload, is going to take you through maximal adaptive volume. And then eventually, if you keep progressively overloading, you're going to move towards your maximal recoverable volume. Every week that you overload and you progress, you create fatigue. And so eventually you're going to reach a point at which you've created so much fatigue, you can't recover from it. And therefore, you've actually breached your MRV and you probably need to somewhat deload. So when we think about how do we practically apply these elements to like a hypertrophy program, you would start out preferably with your minimum effective volume. Why wouldn't you start with that? It's kind of, in a sense, Mike talks about it as being like easy gains. It's the least you need to do to see some sort of the results you want. So you start off your mesocycle week one like that, and then you progress forward. So like I said, that might come through an additional set. It might come through an additional amount of load or it might come through additional reps or something along those lines. There are other ways to progressively overload. They're kind of the traditional ones. Mm -hmm. So then you'd move forward, and for hypertrophy, in the short term at least, very much volume is the key driver once you've overloaded sufficiently. 
So when you're looking to progress week to week, probably you want to focus on bringing up volume. So you probably don't want to increase your weight on the bar so much that your training volume comes down dramatically. So if you're going from kind of like 10 repetitions, you don't want to move down to like eight, four, two. That's kind of tapering down volume and actually increasing intensity. That's more of a strength training sort of mesocycle. Mm-hmm. So volume is king during the short term. Over the long term, we want to get stronger because a bigger muscle, which is what you're aiming for, is going to generally be a stronger muscle. For sure. So, and, and Steve, what are some of the pitfalls there when trainees yeah. are pushing up too close to that maximum recoverable volume for, for too long? So yeah, uh, in or a sense. exceeding it. Yeah, like I said, I mean, some advanced individuals may well need to exceed it. Um, there's not really a lot of evidence on overreaching. There is some, and uh, I mean, I say there's not a lot of evidence. There is evidence for overreaching, but specifically for bodybuilding and for hypertrophy, there's not a lot of evidence. But it does make sense, as we kind of spoke about, as you get more advanced, you need to create a bigger and bigger stress because there's adaptive resistance. You see lesser and lesser gains. So you may well need to really overdo yourself and actually go past MRV. But as soon as you've done that, if you keep training, your performance is going to be really poor. You're going to be creating fatigue because you're still training, but you're not providing an overload for hypertrophy. So this is why deload, taking a week to recover is important. So a fallacy is people who are continually trying to push the bounds. They're even seeing detriments in performance week to week. And they're still just going, hoping that something's going to get better. Whereas actually, they'd be so much smarter to take a week to deload, recover, work up maximally. And so they can recycle again and progress. And I think anyone who's been in the gym and not really had a great education has probably been there where they've just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And then results just actually, they see diminishing returns, performance comes down. You're like, what's wrong? And you probably give up and then come back. And you're like, oh, now I'm okay again kind of have a default deload that way absolutely and that sort of dovetails into that third principle there of fatigue management and yeah you've talked about how training effectively obviously elicits fatigue and of course managing fatigue is a crucial piece of this whole puzzle of making uh, gains and hypertrophy gains and you've touched on a few there already but can you talk about some of the the, the factors or the bigger rocks that you find when working with clients are, are problematic when, when people are trying to manage fatigue or or do so poorly yeah So fatigue management, like you said, it's the third biggest principle. And to be honest, if you get specificity, progressive overload, fatigue management, all in check, you've got a great training program and you're going to see fantastic results. Uh, It's just a shame a lot of people don't end up having all those three or their bits of each and it doesn't quite lead to where they want to go, uh, at least for hypertrophy. So in terms of training wise, um, the biggest things you can have are like rest days, obvious I'd say most people need to have at least one rest day a week. Deloads, like I talked about, every mesocycle, which might be three up to eight weeks in length, where you're accumulating training hard, then taking a week to recover. And then obviously, potentially lower volume phases, so potentially for hypertrophy, you train with high volumes for a long period of time. Eventually, there becomes a time where you're like, I'm going to draw back, go through a strength phase, a lower volume period to allow myself to really recover, um, allow these kind of all the diminishing returns that start settling in, the adaptive resistance to hypertrophy to somewhat settle down. You just get these fatigue markers that catch up to you. And then in addition, outside of kind of training, there's so many different ways to manage fatigue. So a huge one that I think is becoming way more respected and seen as something that's super important is sleep. You know the saying, it's like, oh, you can sleep when you're dead. 
And the unfortunate part of that saying is that actually, if you restrict your sleep to such a degree, you're going to die sooner. <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot earlier, that's for sure. Yeah. And that's scary, but it's absolutely true. And it's not something I really respected until maybe two years ago. And when you think about it, I think any of the listeners can probably relate. Just everything just goes poor, poorer when you're in a like a sleep deprived state. So getting more than six hours is super important. When we think about the people that are listening to this who are putting their bodies through a lot in kind of recommendations that are out there, they're for like general public. And that's like, what, seven hours, eight hours that are given to the general public. So for hard training individuals, like a lot of the listeners, seven, eight hours, that might not even be enough for them. They might want more than that. Now we all live busy lives and it's not always possible, but less than six is a big no-no in my book from listening to and uh, reading Matt Walker's stuff, who's a expert sleep, um, a sleep expert, essentially. He says anything less than six is like a big no-no, like that's going to cause some trouble. So I always recommend a bit more than that. Yeah, Sorry, absolutely. We had um, Dr. Amy Bender on a few seasons ago and of course, she helped develop the athlete sleep screenings questionnaire, and and so, so definitely that idea of of you know at least you know seven if we can get it. And as you mentioned, as as training intensity goes up, we know that that can impact sleep. So athletes are going to require you know more sleep to help facilitate recovery. And and Steve, you mentioned their deload weeks being so crucial. If we if we circle back to that, yeah, you know what are some common mistakes that you found that people make around planning a deload week that that you know sacrifices the effect. Cool. No, definitely. So I think one of the lesser problems that I see sometimes, but I'll start with it, is people deloading when they don't really need it. So that would be like they think they need to deload every fourth week because this training program says they need to. Or they've seen someone more advanced do that, like Chad Wesley Smith might need to deload every fourth week because three weeks batters him because he's super advanced. So it's generally people who are maybe... Uh, smaller, weaker, more novice, who are deloading quite frequently just because they actually don't know any better. And so it's essentially deloading when you haven't got a lot of fatigue, when you're still able to progressively overload. So that's, I think, one mistake, but it's definitely lesser. Less people do that because, especially in bodybuilding, most people like pushing it too hard. Um, And this is another issue, like you talked about, when people kind of, they push the limits, they hit probably MRV or they even go above it and then they go again for another week and potentially they maintain performance if they're lucky or they see detriments in performance and then they're just stubborn and they go again and eventually they probably get injured or they see such a kind of poor performance that they get pissed off and maybe they take a week off the gym and in a sense, that's an okay way to deload in terms of taking a week off the gym. Obviously, I don't recommend getting injured or pushing it once you're seeing performance decrements. For sure. But again, you could a week off the gym is okay. And I'd say a week off the gym is better than taking like a half up, like a half, like not easy week, but not really overloading week. So you're kind of in this dead zone, this kind of junk volume zone for for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. where it's not overloading towards your goal, but it's not underloading enough to really reduce fatigue so you're kind of accumulating fatigue whilst not allowing well you're not allowing fatigue to drop and so you're not getting what you want out of the deload so people basically going into the gym working somewhat hard not really hard and then they're just still going into their first week of another mesocycle or first week back to training and they're still holding on to fatigue so i would prefer someone to take a whole week off if they can't hold themselves back so that's a big problem i see 
And then probably one that is less common, but I see it a lot because a lot of the people I interact with are quite clued up, just overanalyzing a deload. They just look at every single little minute detail. What percentage should I drop intensity by? At what point during the week? How many reps should I do here? And I think people just end up overthinking it. Um, and so I think that in itself is a stress. And really in a deload week, you want to reduce stress. For sure. So that's a big problem. And I just have one more. And well, I think I have one more. And that's basically nutrition during a deload. I think the worst thing you can do when you think about a deload, you're trying to reduce fatigue. And so if you're going into deload week and if you're increasing your calorie deficit or actually even being in a calorie deficit might not be the wisest move. And so I think going to maintenance is generally a good idea, good practice during a deload week to really help bolster recovery. There might be scenarios in which it doesn't make sense. And I don't think it's a huge problem, but generally it's kind of, you don't want to at least diet through a deload when you haven't been dieting beforehand or reduce calories during a deload. I think that's probably an error because again, deloads for fatigue uh, management for recovery and reducing your calories whilst even if you reduce your training, that's going to fatigue you. Yeah, very well said. Great point for, uh, I think sometimes athletes or trainees just intuitively think if they're exercising less, they're going to eat less. Yeah. Um, you get that as well with injured athletes in terms of things like protein intake as well. All of a sudden meal frequency goes down or total intake goes down and we need them to keep eating. So that's a really great point there. And Steve, if we keep moving up the ladder here on the, on the principles of training and we talk programming, yeah, training frequency, exercise selection, training intensity, you know, maybe you could start from sort of a 30,000 foot view here and, and, and walk listeners through how those variables might progress uh, in general, you know, for beginner trainees through to intermediate and advanced. Cool. So I think generally with, so if I start with frequency, the thing that guides frequency and something I took away uh, from the scientific principles of strength training, and I think when you hear about it, it makes inherent sense. I don't think many people really think about it uh, to this degree. And I love the fact that the guys put a term to it. So I think of training frequency as um, strength response adaption curves. So SRA curves for muscle groups. And it can also be specific to exercises. So this is essentially when you train a muscle group, you create a stress, you allow an adaptation and a response, and then you look to train it again. So you kind of want this curve to have gone through before you then train it again, because you don't want to kind of, if you're already recovered, why would you delay and train after several days of recovery? Absolutely. You might as well train again, especially when your goal is hypertrophy, but you don't want to be training when you're still recovering because that's essentially like you're, you're already damaged and now you're trying to kind of create more damage and it hasn't had time to actually see an adaptation that's positive. So that leaves us with like ultra high frequencies can quite often be suboptimal and really kind of low frequencies are quite often suboptimal. And this is why in training literature on hypertrophy, I think two to four times per week is generally the recommendation. And this can be different, like I said, for different exercises, uh, but also for different muscle groups. So for like something like the hamstrings, they, if you do a hip hinge, like a Romanian deadlift, there's a lot of eccentric kind of muscle damage. Mm -hmm. They might take a while to recover and they're quite a big muscle group versus something like biceps, much smaller. They may well just recover. Their SRA curve might be a day. Um, this also depends on the lifter and their advancement. So you talked about kind of 
starting from beginner to advanced. So generally, uh, the less advanced you are, the more frequent you can train because you're less strong, you can create less damage, so your stress response and adaptation is much quicker. So this is why full body programs are quite often recommended to beginners like three times a week because they can just hit everything, they don't need loads, and then they can recover within a, a day or so and then go again. So it works super duper well. And then they might move towards an upper lower split so they're hitting things more like two times per week potentially, and then maybe move towards like the push-pull leg style of split on kind of a, an overview response. So going from beginner to intermediate to advanced. So this is something to take into consideration. It also depends individuals like uh, we're all different. Some people, unfortunately, like me, have a bit of an endurance type background where they are quite slow twitch dominant. So they recover quite quickly and can handle quite a lot of volume. So I have to do a lot in the gym to see results. Whereas someone who maybe is coming from a sprinter's background, a more fast twitch dominant, so they can do very little and they take longer to recover potentially. And this can be different for, again, different individuals, different muscle groups as well. So some muscle groups are more slow twitch dominant, others are more fast twitch dominant. That can have an impact. So the thing I really try and view is kind of, Think about when you're doing a certain exercise for a certain muscle group, when are you recovered by? And that kind of can dictate your frequency so long as it fits your lifestyle as well. Of course, adherence is super important. You might be able to train every other day, but if you can't within your job and schedule, then you need to work out kind of what works for you. And the great thing is, the more important thing is volume across the entire week and less so frequency. Frequency can be thought of as kind of like a way to get in the volume and you would pick the frequency based upon your recovery capabilities. So I think that kind of explains frequency. That's terrific. And I mean, uh, Steve, when we talk about um, as trainers become more advanced, uh, trainees for them, uh, rather, the, in terms of auto-regulation of being able to, you know, sort of feel and know when it's time to, whether it's deload or continue to overload, is that something that you find um, progresses as lifters progress in their training age? Is that inherent to certain lifters over others? Yeah, definitely. So I think an important thing to remember is that as a beginner, when we're thinking about maximum recoverable volume, they probably don't even need to get to that point. Uh, they don't need to take themselves that close. Also, their technique proficiency, their ability to really know how close they are to failure isn't probably as good. So you, you just want to be a bit more risk averse because you don't need to take them that close. So you might have pre-programmed deloads for someone like a beginner just because they might be able to go for another week, but when you weigh up the pros versus cons, it's not worth it. Whereas for someone more advanced who's been lifting five plus years, they probably would benefit from going to MRV and potentially over it sometimes. And so there is a bit more of a thought of, okay, Maybe I plan my deload in week four, but let's see how I'm going. Let's see how progression is. Let's see, maybe I had a really good good week of sleep or good few weeks of sleep and I didn't have a stressful time at work. Maybe I can push for a fifth week. And for that individual who's more advanced, they might need that little bit extra and they might benefit from that. And so they can more so be in, in tune with their body, whether or not they can truly push again and keep movement safe for another week. So that's how I kind of view those Terrific. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was recently chatting with uh, Dr. Dan Cleather at St. Mary's University there in London in the UK. And, you know, he'd done some work on 
two groups of trainees starting a program and, and the one that began with you know the lighter weights and initially progressed more slowly in the end had had greater results so it is uh, awesome. interesting to see that sort of uh, steady progression and if we talk intensity here uh, for a minute Steve the concept of reps and reserve can you yeah. define that term for listeners and explain how that can help them find the sweet spot in their training perfect yeah I think reps and reserve is brilliant like you said kind of leaving a bit on the table so that you can keep going is a really kind of it isn't an amazingly new concept, but for bodybuilders, it is. Um, so I first heard of kind of relative intensities from the RPE scale, which was from Mike Tashurda, who used RPE uh, to kind of help his powerlifters. For a lot of powerlifters, they work submaximally. They don't go to failure. They work with big heavy weights. It doesn't make sense. And you get better strength gains that way. And so this was like RP 1 to 10, a 10 being no reps left, and then uh, RP like 1 being, I don't know, it was like a piece of cake. This is like deload <laughs> sure. stuff. This is like not going to the gym. And then that got translated to RAR, reps in reserve, I think through Dr. Eric Helms. And he's been doing a lot of work with that. Um, and that has been able to be moved into programs. You can essentially think of reps in reserve, like how many reps from failure are you? Um, how many reps do you have left in the tank? So generally when we're thinking about hypertrophy, you're looking at most people training with like two reps in reserve on average, that seems to be the best bang for your buck. But if we're talking about, like you said, if through a mesocycle, when we're talking about minimum effective volume, you can also think about just minimum effective dose in general. And for relative intensities, that seems to be in the literature for very novice people, potentially four, five reps in reserve. For more advanced individuals, you might not really get anything from that. You might be nearer to like the three reps in reserve. So that's kind of starting your mesocycle, how many reps in reserve you could potentially leave. And then like we talked about, that's overload. Progressive overload means things need to get harder. And so if you're adding um, kind of weight on the bar, probably your reps in reserve are going to come down. So from week one to week two, you might go from three to two reps in reserve, two reps in reserve to one rep in reserve. And then if you're advanced, you can go towards that failure point or maybe some exercises you leave a rep in reserve, some exercises where it's safe, you go towards failure, knowing that all of those are overloading because the relative intensities, the studies have shown that we can leave reps in the tank and it still be a big enough stress to cause the adaptation we want. And because we've left reps in reserve, we're open to overload in future. So we've kind of in the session, we've got that initial overload and we've allowed for overload in future. Whereas traditionally a lot of bodybuilders and some still do, they train straight to failure every single session. Mm -hmm. And the trouble with that is, where do you go from there? Not only do you sacrifice volume because if you go to failure on squats, what else can you do in your session? You're so fatigued kind of acutely. Then chronically, where do you go next week? You're not going to advance. You're, you're too advanced to add loads to that every single week. So it kind of puts us in a really bad spot. So by leaving reps in reserve, it allows us to accumulate good volume and it allows us to progressively overload over weeks until we kind of go towards failure or on rep reserve. That's fantastic, Steve. And if we continue on here and get to the, the tip of the pyramid here, the individualization. Yeah. And these days, regardless if we're talking medicine, nutrition, training, people tend to be looking for these quote unquote individualized programs. So, you know, where does individualization really sit in terms of making hypertrophy gains and, and when might it actually become more important? Cool. So yeah, I think the idea that this is the least important thing is important. 
because I think a lot of people jump towards being a special snowflake and focusing on all of that before they get everything else sorted. For sure. But if you get everything else sorted and you move forward, I think when you assess and analyze how you're responding, how certain exercises fit for you, how well you're recovering from things, you can individualize. And this is actually uh, what I do with clients. If I don't know them that well, which I very rarely do know them that well when they're first signing up, I start off with the specificity, progressive overload, fatigue management, programming. I have that all within. And then the individualization comes later because like you said, you're looking for an individualized program. You can't get that until you actually know the individual. So every week they're reporting to me, we're looking at how they're responding and we're individualizing. Everyone's got unique genetics, unique training history. They've got different lifestyles. They've got different preferences. So that's all going to impact what they respond well to and what allows them to adhere to the program. And it's quite important within bodybuilding specifically because some people are very tall. So something like a squat, that's a great quad builder for most people. For that very tall individual with poor leverages for a squat, they might absolutely hate it. So then by being individualized, you can move to maybe a hack squat or a Smith machine squat or something more suitable for them. And some people just find they get a lot out of some movements and less out of others. Again, when we talk about muscle fiber types, mm -hmm. some people find they're very much more fast twitch or very much more slow twitch. Some people need way more volume than other people. So this is where individualization comes in. You essentially start off with the foundational principles, see how you respond to those and move forward with your program, making very slight, small adjustments, not program hopping. And then that is where the gold is, basically. And the thing is with individualization, it's dynamic over time. Like I said, as you get more advanced, progressive overload is slower. You might get so strong that your training volume has to somewhat, you can't do as much. Maybe even your execution becomes better. So you create more damage within muscles. And so you can't do as many sets. So over time, you need to keep assessing, keep monitoring, and you will keep individualizing and moving towards a program that works for you. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a uh hundred percent there in terms of the fundamentals being so crucial and, and what you talked about previously being, you know, specificity, progressive overload, fatigue management being those real big rocks um, that are going to provide the bulk of the gains, especially for a lot of people earlier on. And as people get yeah. more and more advanced and this, you know, closer to the tip of the spear here is when you're going to get your individualization. And again, whether it's health or nutrition, it's, it's very similar in that sense of, of those fundamentals being so key. And, and, and maybe now, uh, Steve, if we shift gears to talking about monitoring progress, so if a trainee is looking to add lean muscle, right, they're looking to gain weight, do you have some general weekly targets that you're typically looking for? You know, when does it get to be too much too soon or too fast? Could you uh, give us a few uh, tips there? Absolutely. So I think a lot of people try and assess whether or not they're growing muscle too frequently, uh, especially kind of the people probably listening to this podcast, intermediates, advanced people, we're lucky if we're gaining kind of any significant amount, of, we're not gaining any significant amount of muscle within weeks, even within months, we're not gaining significant amounts. That's going to be highly visible. So it's different. You don't want to assess it too often. Fat loss. You can see a lot of fat loss within a week, within weeks. You can see a physique change within a month. Whereas for muscle growth, you really can't. So I think some people end up shooting themselves in the foot by assessing too frequently. A lot of people end up thinking they've got quote unquote fluffy or soft and they're like, oh, I'm going to give up with this. I very much prefer people to focus on performance over how they're looking and over what the scale is necessarily saying. Because when we think about it, I always think training lights the fire for muscle growth. Nutrition just fuels it. 
So nutrition is permissive. If you're kind of you optimize your nutrition, you've got everything perfect, nutritional timing, get plenty of protein all the time, but you're not training hard and you're not seeing progress there. You're not growing muscle. You just aren't. So you need to be seeing that. And so in the long term, I focus on strength gains. So over the months, uh, depending how advanced a person is, they should be getting stronger. Over the short term, I'm hoping and trying to assess that volume is overall coming up. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, just using logbooks and seeing how their rep performance is to see if they're getting PRs over time. I don't necessarily kind of deload and then do an AMRAP set to test performance. I'm more so just looking at their logbook data. And so I'm generally looking for people, and especially the people I coach, a lot of them are on top of their stuff. So they're on top of their sleep, they're on top of their nutritional timing, they're quite advanced, they may be coaches themselves. And so I can shoot for quite an assertive rate of gain where I know they're going to be putting a lot of muscle on. So I tend to look for every two weeks to gain 0.5% of body weight or 0.25. So every month, 1% to 2% of additional body weight. Um, for those people who are maybe got everything together or they're more new to training, if I have someone who doesn't have their stuff together, even if maybe they're new to training, if I can't assure that their training is really, really good, then I think shooting for that more assertive rate of gain can actually just lead to a lot of fat gain. So I don't go for that. But I do prefer to make sure that weight is going up over time. If there's been periods of time where there's a couple of months where someone hasn't gained weight, then I worry that they haven't actually gained any muscle. And we all know that gaining muscle is so much harder than losing fat. So mm -hmm. I very much prefer to see the scale going up. That's terrific. And, you know, in terms of perhaps you know, younger trainees who are looking to make big gains in a short period of time, they want to see that scale moving up and they, you know, most probably are adding on, you know, significant amounts of fat mass as well as some muscle. Yeah. Do you have any heuristics in terms of when people should be dialing back in terms of how they might look in the mirror or potentially even, you know, I've heard you talk about the role of mini cuts in terms of yeah. uh, trainees, you know, where do those things fit in? So... For me, mini cuts are, I think they're a bit unique to how some other people may necessarily use them. I think a lot of people view mini cuts as just an element of fat loss and to bring down uh, fat tissue to make sure that the person is in a better position to gain muscle. Uh, obviously, kind of if you get too fat, then you're going to have loads of muscle to lose eventually. So that's not good. And then people talk about P ratios, so partitioning ratios. Generally, the leaner you are, the more of your nutrition is going to be going to muscle um, and less to fat. And then the fatter you get, unfortunately, the more that goes to fat and less to muscle. That seems to be kind of what the literature is pointing to with P ratios. Yep. So people often look at mini cuts as just a way to strip off fat. I also view mini cuts to strip off fat, but also to somewhat reduce training. So when we go for a mini cut, they're very short, sharp, aggressive we can actually get away with less training during that period of time because we're not really, really trying to push muscle growth um, to a large extent. And in fact, I look at it as a time to kind of maintain our muscle mass, maintain momentum of the gaining phase and draw back on training volume, which might have got quite high to somewhat relieve some fatigue so that we can keep gaining and, and keep pushing training volume and seeing great response in that sense. So sometimes I might put someone for a really short, sharp mini cut where their body fat isn't necessarily to a point where you're like, they really need a mini cut, but they're at a point with their training volume where they really need to draw it back a bit. So I'll get in really short, sharp and come out. And my experience so far, and I mean, again, this is, there's very little literature on this sort of thing, 
But my experience so far with clients and with myself has been just it leads to a really smooth off-season phase where it's kind of every time they mass back up, they kind of feel much better in terms of their hunger and they don't get to a point where they're really, really like stuffing food in and they feel much better with their body composition and muscle growth is just much more smooth and linear. The problem some people get into with mini cuts is that they use them too frequently and they try and bring down body fat back to baseline every time. Each time you mini cut, you're probably going to buy yourself less time. It's unlikely and you shouldn't really be aiming to if you're in a kind of long off season to bring your weight back down to where you started. You should be gaining muscle over time, but also you're probably allowing a bit of fat to accumulate at the same time. So you might get away with kind of you build up, do a mini cut, come down a bit, build up, come down a bit, build up, mini cut, come down a bit. And then you build up and you're probably at a point where a mini cut just doesn't solve the issue. And your training volume has actually been fairly high for the entire time because mini cuts, you still can't go super low. Otherwise, you might miss risk muscle loss, uh, muscle loss. Yeah, muscle loss. Mm -hmm. um, so you would then go through like a maintenance phase at like a peak bulked body weight where potentially you don't feel that great, but you're your biggest ever. You've got the most muscle ever. You let it kind of hold. Um, I think the bros kind of call it hardening, but I think there's definitely something to that, even though there isn't a lot of scientific data. And you kind of hold this new like settling point of body weight um, and of body mass. And then maybe enter a longer cut where you will actually bring down fat by a large degree, maintain your muscle mass, and then you might restart the cycle again. So that's kind of where I move with mini cuts. And it will look different for everyone. Some coming out of a contest prep phase, they might get away with like a really long off season because they're building up from quite a low baseline. Whereas someone who is kind of a bit on the fatter side, they might end up having to kind of, they get away with one mini cut and then they need to go through a longer cut eventually more frequently. And then it just depends on people's preferences and where they perform their best. Like I said before, training is the light, uh, the match that lights the fire for muscle gain. So if their body fat is quite high, but their training performance is like the best it's ever been, then I'll be a bit more, okay, let's keep going because training performance is so high that why would we restrict that so it, it can be quite individual in that regard but that's how i tend to utilize mini cuts to keep kind of body fat in check but also to allow training volume to be drawn back a little bit to keep muscle growth a bit smoother during the off season never seeing like massive plateaus fantastic and you know continuing on this discussion of sort of monitoring and assessing Last year, I had uh, Dr. Andrew Chappelle on the on the program and his research in elite bodybuilders, and I was really oh, surprised awesome. to see that um, fifty percent were obviously just using, you know, how they looked in the mirror to to gauge progress. Obviously, I think it was about thirty some odd percent were using uh, skin fold calipers. Do you have a preference there of what you use with your trainees or even with yourself to monitor your progress? So yeah, that's really cool, um, Andrew. I need to get him on my podcast as well. It's doing some really cool stuff in a population that doesn't often get assessed. Definitely. So yeah, with um, checking progression in that sense, obviously I talked about performance markers, getting stronger in the long term, um, but also I take for my clients body weight measurements. We also assess girth measurements, so circumference measurements around like thighs, neck, uh, around their uh, chest and areas like that, and then also visual cues. So uh, I try, it's super important to get very similar lighting, very similar conditions in every sense. Just like weighing in, you need to be on like the same scale, same time. Yep. Um, so you can really assess progress. And as most of my clients are either like, well, any, I don't know anyone who needs to know their body fat. 
Uh, and the problem with measuring body fat is you're never actually measuring body fat. You're measuring something else to give you an indication of what the body fat is. So even if you think you're a certain level, you don't know it. Whereas you can look in the mirror and you can kind of get a good assessment of how far am I away from stage condition or how far away am I from being kind of beach lean or whatever it might be. And you can see enough within the mirror. And for a bodybuilder, I can see why 50% of them just look at how they're looking because that's all the judges care about. They also (laughs) don't care about how they're judged, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, They don't measure your body fat on stage. And again, even if they try to, there's just so many things that can cause discrepancies within measurements. There's even in DEXA scans, which are super expensive, there's big error rates potentially even. And then if you use different DEXA scans, that can screw up everything. I don't think people even realize. So sure. yeah, that's I mean, hydration, how creatine, all these things. Yeah. I can, uh, Absolutely. you know, depending on which regression equation you're using with skin folds, it, it is a really, uh, a minefield out there and trying to actually determine. So I, I like your, uh, your thoughts there. And, Steve, if we if we zoom back out here, um, thirty thousand foot view, we're coming to the end of today's interview. You talked earlier about adherence and how that you know the role it plays in all of this in terms of achieving success. Can, can you come back to that and talk about why it's so important and, and we have that long term view of making gains? Mm-hmm, perfect. So yeah, adherence is really absolutely key to everything. When you think about the training and nutrition and the perfect program out there. If you can't actually execute it, you're not going to get anywhere with it because you need to be able to do something and do it consistently over time and progress with it. So adherence is super important. And a lot of people have different situations. And a lot of my clients, I could see them being able to potentially do something or I'd hope they could do something. But then when I talk to them, I can see that they can't adhere to that. And different people at different points in their life have different things going on. And so you can structure something that someone can see results with and progress with, even if it's not necessarily optimal. And I think too many people get a bit carried away with that. Um, Mm. And like I said, when we're talking about minimum effective volume, maximum recoverable volume, there's a big range that most people land within where they can see fantastic results. And over time, the difference isn't, night and day it's small percentages of gain so with my clients i'm very much along the lines of when we can like go all in and make the most progress possible let's do it but when we need to like take it back a bit that's absolutely fine um so yeah adherence is absolutely key because like i said if if you can't execute then you're not going to see any results and a lot of people end up i've had clients who have said i can train six days per week or i want to train six days per week rather and then i asked them what but is that realistic? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after a few weeks, this time <laughs> it's they not like, realistic, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They hit four sessions and you're like, if this happens again, we're going to four sessions per week and you have to kind of balance their programs that way. And um, they see better results that way as well. It, it becomes stressful as well when you give someone a program and they keep not executing it. As a coach, that's not good because they start kind of getting demoralized. So I'm very much along the lines of, even if I have to make something I'm maybe not 100% happy with how it's looking. It's going to provide better results if that's what they can adhere to. Terrific. And, uh, you know, if we talk mindset here, Steve, to, to wrap things up, and, of course, you know, with your journey, I'm, obviously your mindset's changed a lot throughout that journey. Um, I imagine you have a mindset you're trying to instill in your clients who are looking to, to achieve success. You know, f- 
for yourself and, and all that you've gone through, what are some of those keys there? Is there a certain mindset that you're trying to instill in, in athletes or how does that become important when they're really trying to be consistent and adhere to the program and put in all those long hours to achieve their goals? Absolutely. So I think when I look at the success of the best people within bodybuilding, within their careers, within anything, it's consistency. So I try and instill a mindset that allows people to consistently dominate and adhere to their program um, to the best of their ability and realize that there can be flexibility. There can be life that happens for some of them. And then others of them, it's very much like we, like I said, when we can take it, we take it there. So some of my contest prep athletes, I try and make sure that when we've got the ability to really push it, for example, fat loss, and we can kind of, we can lose at a fast rate, we take it there. Um, being very methodical, uh, scientific and thinking lifters, but also not kind of letting the basics get away from us, making sure execution is on point, all of these things. So it's just trying to kind of, you're trying to juggle a lot of elements, but focus on the foundations and then you can move forward with the individual aspects. And for me, with a lot of the people I end up talking to, the thing that draws them away from consistency I kind of call it um, magpie syndrome, where they get attracted to every single shiny new thing that's out there, <laughs> <For sure. laughs> whether or not that's a new training program or a new tool to monitor something. Oftentimes, it just draws focus away from what's really important. And so I just continually reconfirm that everything we're doing is moving towards what we want it to and looking at the bigger picture. Uh, at times, I'm sure you've had it where clients potentially want to cut for a holiday or something and if they've they're in their bodybuilding off season and they may be competing the year ahead you kind of be like this is not in line with your long-term goal trying to keep people away from their short-term mindset and keep them on the track of long-term focusing on themselves and again coming back to that consistency because that's the key to their results yep such an important role for for all great coaches and you know like yourself so great to hear that those are real fundamentals and steve Terrific insights here. Appreciate you taking the time today. Um, lots of great insights for, for people to apply into their routines. You know, if people want to stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic work, where's the best place to do so? Thank you very much for having me on. Um, love talking. And so if they want to kind of find out where we are, I think revivestronger.com is probably the best place to find us. There they can see various blog articles. Miguel Blacout has been putting out some fantastic work over there recently. The podcast is over there as well. And then Revive Stronger on Instagram and on Facebook. We have a free Facebook group. We've got a kind of growing community over there, which people can find. And then if they want to kind of follow me, follow my journey on Instagram, see some of these infographics and um, see me talking about my days, they can come on Instagram and even send me a DM if they want to. Awesome. We'll definitely include those links in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for coming on here, Steve. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Steve or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, take a minute, subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, share Steve's tremendous insights here today by sending out a tweet, posting on Facebook, or adding to your Instagram story. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys all next week. 
The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.